Hey, what's up, y'all? This is Paul Miller, a.k.a. DJ Spooky, straight out of New York City. I'm checking in with Australia on 855 on your AM dial. And remember, community radio is subscription-sponsored, and I think it's incredibly important to always remember that it's a different perspective. Check it. Community radio now and beyond. And welcome to 3CR's Renegade Economist with your host, Carl Fitzgerald, where today we're looking at the harsh realities between those who are stewards of the land with the, the convenient push that austerity places on communities, unraveling those who do care for the earth. And uh, this is couched in this tragic scenario, yet another hurdle, another challenge for Indigenous communities with the proposed forced closures of remote communities. So uh, we're going to talk to two special guests today from uh, Outback Western Australia. We have Curtis Taylor from the Maru Mili, the lands of the Pilbara country of Bungal. And also we're talking to Suri as well. So uh, it's very interesting thinking about how uh, the exploration licenses for mining and what's really driving this. In uh, December 2011, the expenditure on uh, mining exploration was at a record $532 million and now it has plummeted down to $183 million. So it's... it seems like uh, they've pulled back on exploration. Maybe they've already mapped it all and uh, uh, they're waiting for the price of the land to fall even further, which could well be what is is part of the, the perfect mix for those in the know. But what about the community? How are they going to um, deal with uh, yet more um, moving on from their traditional lands, cutting off their ties to their, their spiritual ancestry, their lands, and with that, completing yet another chapter in Australia's uh, horrid uh, form of uh, subtle genocide. All right, let's step into the conversation with Curtis Taylor. We're talking to Curtis Taylor, an artist from the Maru Mili Independent Art Collective in the uh, Pilbara country of Bungal. And uh, these are the lands around the Sandy Desert, the Little Sandy, and the the Gibson Desert. So uh, we're talking six, eight hours inland from the west coast of Australia. So, Curtis, uh, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. So what sort of changes have you seen in your lands over the last decade as the Chinese mining bubble has really kicked off? We're based in the East Pilbara. Most of the... Devastation and you know the mining uh, happens over in the West Pilbara around Paraburu, Tom Price, Port Hedland, and north of Newman, Panawanika. For us, we have one miner that's currently active, Newcrest Mining, um, and they're a Telfer gold mine, is north of Banwur, in between Banwur and Punmu. Where, where I come from. Um, but still, exploration uh, companies coming out and exploring uh, for minerals. So not so much as our West Pilbara neighbours. 
Right. And with Newcrest Mining, uh, are they using arsenic in their gold mining and polluting waterways? Or what has been your your feedback loop in, in experiencing mining in your country? That's one of the chemicals that they use to clear the ore, find the gold. For us, because it's a very large area, it's kind of in one side, the gold mining. And um, it's not so much affected us with our water within our communities. But even though we travel through that area, even underground, it's you know, it's still desert country, but yeah, it's part of the Kenning Basin and that's where most of the water comes from. Well, hopefully uh, those effects aren't going to be felt forever, but uh, yeah, it sounds like these risks that mining companies take is uh, a huge factor that must weigh on uh, Indigenous elders uh, uh, around the country and uh, to have such a short-term perspective as we in the West do, that that must just be so uh, confronting for uh, elders to try and grasp. And uh, I suppose the main reason we're talking today is about the possible forced closures of remote communities and uh, how have your people been feeling uh, with these discussions? So I grew up in Bangalore and Bidiranga, which is 180 k south of Boom, and still go back to my homeland. I now live in Perth, but um, yeah, most of my work are with my people back home. With the forced closures of communities, there was a lot of innuendo and people were really nervous about if their community was going to be closed and then where would they have to go if that happened? Would it be to a larger community, like a some place like Jigalong, where most Maru live? That's two hours east of Newman. A lot of Maru have lived there before, back in the mission days. And, you know, a really famous story came from that place with the rabbit pool fence when those three girls got taken away and walked back to their to their homeland, to their family, to Jigalong. With that, a lot of people, yeah, still nervous about, you know, which communities would be get, getting closed. It would have been great if there was a lot of consultation beforehand and during and then straight after the announcement from the Premier, Colin Barnett. I know last couple of months he went up there to the Pilbara and to the Kimberleys to meet with these communities and community members all across the Northwest and had to sit down and chat with them properly and see firsthand what the community had in terms of water, housing, and the society around the the different communities, because all of those communities and language groups are very distinct and different to each other. Yes, and uh, the effects of uh, decades of cutbacks and uh, different techniques to corner Indigenous people must be mounting up and uh, on the back of the stolen generations, uh, the axing of the uh, CDEP uh, payments, uh, which employed some 40,000 Indigenous people around Australia, virtually simultaneously uh, with the uh, the intervention rolling out, this latest forced closures is the, the next step in pushing people off their land, perhaps. 
Yeah, with the demise of CDEP, a lot of people that were living in the communities and working with CDEP and getting paid and living out in the in the communities and living within their homelands, with the cuts to that, a lot of people have gone out of work. But still today, a lot of people within these communities and all across the state have found different ways to maintain their connection to the country with the establishment of ranger programs and working with different agencies that work within their region. So, you know, a lot of people are really positive and, yeah, finding different ways to maintain their connection to country and working and looking after the ecosystems that, you know, same as their forefathers did. So this story that's painted in the mainstream press, I mean, even through ABC, Four Corners and, and TV shows like that, saying that uh, these remote communities are all run down, there's uh, lots of uh, sexual diseases and chronic illness and poor nutrition, all these sort of things. You're saying that that's not always true. There has been, you know, communities where they have been run down. And um, lately I just came back from Jigalong and Bijaranga where a lot of these communities are having new housing built. So that's a kind of a, yeah, right step in the way and um you know all these things that happen within these communities there definitely has been you know sniffing problems alcohol drug abuse and sexual abuse mental abuse but a lot of people you know still see the positive and still see this is their homeland they don't know where to move anywhere else so you know, it's very, um, I think, criminal to move somebody off from their from their homeland, from their estate. Yes, and uh, one of the white papers I've seen uh, was a draft paper that the ABC published uh, about the draft proposed community categories and uh, it was the internal WA government documents categorising all of the remote communities into five separate funding categories and in the lower two categories of four and five, there was some, most of those communities had 20 to 30 people in those communities, and it seems like uh, that's what perhaps the government is zeroing in on to change. I mean, how do you feel about these communities that have so few people? What can be done to keep them on their land? I think with those communities that have so few people, you know, those communities and those people made the choice to go out and live and reclaim their land from after living in town or on somebody else's country in a different community. So a lot of these people are you know, going back to living on their own country and um, living on their own grandfather's, grandmother's country. A lot of... Um, these communities, we have, you know, those categories you talked about. A lot of people are nervous about whether they'd be bigger communities with, you know, 800 or 1,000 people plus in those communities or smaller communities that maybe have 100 or 200 people or these other 
small smaller communities where during the homelands movement a lot of people had the right to go back and set up and get this block of land and set up you know a couple of houses and and go there and live and then saying that a lot of people go back there and maintain that country and go out and fish and hunt and live in those areas not so much all the time but still have that connection to that country where they come from with the smaller smaller communities you're saying that in these small communities those people should be respected if you like rather than forced off their lands because they are doing important work maintaining those cultural ties yeah yeah definitely they need to be respected and the land around them need to be respected through you know them man- maintaining the culture and maintaining the ecosystem by going out fishing hunting uh, burning and uh, maintaining the the ecosystem through that and all those different practices and having ceremony and revisiting sites that you know they haven't seen or they only heard stories about or you know visiting them where their grandfather or grandmother took them to show them uh, their birthplace or their grandfather's and grandmother's birthplace. So that's a spiritual connection that needs to be yeah maintained. And I think if we don't have that anymore, a lot of people would be lost and spiritually deprived from their country. You're on 3CR's Renegade Economist this week with Curtis Taylor talking about life in remote communities in the Pilbara in the face of the uh, the mounting threats to forcibly close some of these remote communities. And Curtis Taylor, uh, as I um, do the numbers on this uh, Western Australian document, it sounds like there's 3,500 people who could be forcibly removed from uh, some 120 communities uh, where numbers as small as four to 38 people per community could be moved on. And uh, if you think of the incredible cost that that uh, would weigh up to when, if we say that two people live in each house, that's uh, and each house is worth $500,000 each in this crazy time, then that's a cost of somewhere between five hundred to $900 million plus relocation fees, retraining, all those sort of costs. So it's not like it's a really cheap option for federal or state governments to engage in. Uh, how have uh, you felt looking at the rhetoric the government's using versus the actual outcomes and who's really going to benefit from this? Yeah, well, it's coming again in all different forms. So it's not anything new to Indigenous people living in the country or living in their own homelands. So where are these people going to go if they were be to move? Would they be crowding into these towns like Fitzroy Crossing, like Broome, like Halls Creek, like Newman, like Port Hedland, where these services that are in the town already cannot keep up with, you know, the influx of people moving 
in between communities and yeah. So it's it's very yeah, it's crazy. And a lot of people that live out in the community, they made a choice to go out there to go back there because of yeah, their their connection. And they don't like living in towns. That's why they set up these communities and to move back. So and don't wanna be involved in, you know, all the troubles that town life has to come with. And on top of that side of things, the the other side to the story is what perhaps the mining companies are looking at and uh, it's just staggering to hear um, one of my old friends talks about how uh, some mining conferences talk about the desire to turn the Pilbara into an inland sea and uh, just strip mine so much country with iron ore uh, that uh, they can set up a new harbour, new Sydney harbour almost in the Pilbara. And uh, th- these mining companies, there must be uh, so many exploration licences going on in remote Western Australia. I just wonder uh, if you've heard any stories about mining companies getting really excited uh, to uh, to mine some of these areas. And obviously when these remote communities are shut down, there'll be less oversight and more room for them to engage in some of the, the less uh, salubrious practices. Yeah, well, there has been that excitement from companies and governments for a long time. But what stands in the way are the people that live in those areas. And, um, you know, if they're thinking about, you know, turning the Pilbara into an inland sea, well, good luck to them, because a lot of people will be there ready to fight for their country. Yes, and uh, I mean, some of these uh, giant land grabs that are going on, uh, uh, you know, Andrew Forrest has been buying up thousands of acres for the last uh, 10 years or so. Uh, I mean, there must be some big international companies buying land. I note that uh, one of Australia's oldest pastoral farms, the Kidman Farm, which has 101,000 not hectares, but square kilometres of land just going to sale for some $325 million. Uh, There's a lot of international money floating around looking to buy up unique places on this planet. And I just wonder if uh, there's not something more to this proposed closure of of remote communities. Uh, Have you heard any other whispers along those lines? A lot of those talks are kind of behind closed doors and... A lot of people would come out and be straight and say, you know, this is what we're going to use it for. Then I think there'll be a lot of different fight going on and um, a different motivation behind these community people and rural areas that want to stop and not have their land taken away, whether it be indigenous people or, you know, pastoralists that um, yeah, live there for generations. I've read reports that some 70% of sacred sites in Western Australia have been deregistered under the uh, Heritage Act there. Have you heard similar stories and is this sort of preparing the ground to uh, remove some of the checks and balances that cultural officers play in, um, in 
curtailing some of the mining activity? Yeah, well, the deregistration of these sites uh, are very um, yeah, saddening for a lot of people and groups that you know come from these areas and hear about these sites and their whether it be their Jugulwa, their Dreamtime place, or their birthplace, or their place where they go hunting and, and fishing, deregistered, it's um, it's very saddening for that to hear emotionally for people, and um, a lot of the sites where they're unregistered and, you know, there's still more to be registered and still, you know, there's a backlog of, you know, um, sites that haven't been registered for a number of years. And um, it's it's very sad to hear, you know, that a lot of people, you know, fought and, you know, gave evidence and gave, um, you know, the importance of these places to be registered and not to be disturbed. When that happens, when a place is disturbed like that, a lot of people, you know, that have that connection to their homeland, to that side, is very, um, is very, yeah, very sad. And, you know, a lot of people think twice about, you know, whether it be, you know, worth giving that knowledge to the younger generation. And we finish there with Curtis Taylor from the Matu Mili, the lands of uh, the Bungle. So uh, now we move on to uh, Suri Bin Saad, who's a proud Nijinkara man, a performing artist. Uh, he's based in Melbourne here, but uh, I started off asking him about uh, his concerns for remote communities and um, particularly how Curtis there had just turned the main criticism around that where these uh, people living in small communities, maybe three or four people, where well, well, they should actually be respected for maintaining the, the cultural ties to the land there rather than seeing as a burden on uh, the state. So let's have a listen to Suri. Be warned, this is a bit of a sketchy recording. Uh, a little way into it, Suri jumps on a tram. So uh, let's just go with it. Because now the government's asking, you know, they're on that verge, I guess, in order to shut down these communities. And and they're bringing in all these workers from all different departments. And the community aren't coping too well with this because a lot of the communities are very small, of course. And so it's pretty overwhelming, and we've got to the stage where, you know, once they're housing these new people coming in, they're going to be basically stopping everyone else from living in their general homes in regards to more accommodation being built. And, you know, which, again, that brings in costs, and it's going to be more expensive for people to live there, and basically this this is what's what the main issue is. And... It's really unfair for community, um, knowing that there are certain communities that have actually built specifically for um, Aboriginal people to come in, you know, after being living out in settlements and stations and, and having the chance to actually build a community in the 60s. And now it's got to the point where, you know, that's going to be taken over in a sense. And 
it's um it's quite appalling, you know, because there's really no respect as well, and the government have been pushing to the extremities and not really giving anyone general, you know, acknowledgement of what's going on, and and there hasn't been any permission being granted. It's just basically pushed into the community. What sort of stories have you heard about mining companies circling some of these remote communities and perhaps there uh, being a bit of a land grab driving this real agenda? Currently, there's been these these guys are going into communities and actually drilling drilling in wells and or creating you know pipelines or whatever they're doing in regards to development and without permission and it's in the backyard of these people's places and then they're telling them everything is safe and it's nothing to worry about and nothing is toxic and they don't understand how much damage they actually are doing, not only to the land but obviously to the people and you know, and they're trying to buy out communities by selling off certain properties and asking for a sum amount in regards to saying that this is an opportunity, you know, we're creating job opportunities for community, we're, we're giving them jobs in the mines, and as much as it sounds, like, oh, this is amazing, you know, it's given us an opportunity to be able to give our youth um, job, future job development and, and careers, but they don't realise how much it's actually stuffing up country and land and, and messing with people emotionally and spiritually. And realistically, the government are offering petty amounts of what the land is actually really worth in regards to, you know, the TOs who they're speaking to, and the TOs are are being, I guess, manipulated to believe that this is a great opportunity and being ripped off not just millions but billions of dollars. But in the end, all the people from the community, we know who are strong in culture and who are strong in spirit, know that we should not sell off the land and we are standing and creating a stance for our land and our people and making sure that this does not happen. And we have to leave it there. That's Suri Bin Saad uh, talking about the importance of maintaining some connection with the land and ownership, custodianship of the land. We should not be selling it outright uh, as we return back to our central theme here on The Renegade Economist. And uh, it's just so frustrating that billions of dollars have been made in this mining boom. Um, God, trillions have been made in the land boom. But, uh, of course, there's there's no way to fund these remote communities and maintain uh, just some of the connections left after so many elements of the genocide that's gone on here in Australia. And Terry Redman, the Western Australian National Party leader, had said early on when this remote closures uh, uh, issue came up that just 25% of the forecast mining royalties could be paid to cover the operating costs and uh, all would be fine, but very soon he was shot. Down. So what a tragedy that uh, we have uh, so little respect for the world's oldest known culture and uh, the rest of the world is looking on Australia and wondering when on earth uh, we're going to live up to our, our past our moral groundings uh, on some level or on another. But uh, that's it for the Renegade Economists. Stay tuned for Small Talk coming up here on 3CR. You can now hear 3CR in three different ways. The same content is broadcast on all platforms. 3CR 855 AM, 3CR Digital, streaming live 
on freecr.org.au. Digital Radio is a new way of broadcasting. Listeners need to have a digital radio to hear the 3CR Digital. 3CR Digital is broadcast throughout the Melbourne metropolitan area only. 3CR is still broadcasting on 8.55am. So everyone...